Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Amen. We serve a God who will never lose a battle. Praise be to God. Um, I'd like to begin just by praying together. So let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we turn now to the study of your word. I pray, God, that you would meet us here. Pray that you would give us hearts that are able to receive what you would have for us. And that from all this, you would receive the honor and the glory. In your name, amen. So, my name is Brandon Freemian, and I am the pastoral candidate for the church. So, last week, Anna Lee preached through Mark 16 and the Great Commission. So, we hit the end of Mark. But sometimes when something has been really, really good, you just got to go back for some more. So... For the next two weeks, we are having the Servant King, the Addendum, where we're going to be uh, in Mark for two more weeks. So when we were preaching through Mark, we, we skipped over Mark 10. And the reason for that was at the time, there was a number of people in our congregation who were experiencing loss, and we thought it was important to talk about that on Sunday morning. And so we didn't get a chance to preach through Mark 10. And in Mark 10, there are two stories that the preaching team thought were important that we preach through. One of them is the one we're looking at today, which is Jesus' teaching on divorce. The other one is the story of the rich young ruler, which is in some ways Jesus' teaching on wealth. And these are two topics where what Jesus has to say and what the prevailing cultural narrative is around those things are radically different. And so we thought it was important that we as a church hear what Jesus had to say on those two things. So we are going to be in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12 today, which is Jesus' teaching on divorce. Now, I recognize that today's topic is a tough one, and one that is close to home for many in the congregation, some who have been through a divorce, Uh, certainly many who have had close friends or relatives who have gone through a divorce, some who are in marriages that are struggling right now. So my approach for today is first, I want to clarify what Jesus teaches on this from Mark 10. And I'm going to try and focus a lot on this text. So I am not going to attempt to say everything that could be said on the topic of marriage and divorce because we would be here for a really long time. But I also want to explore, the second thing, some of the reasons for his teaching coming out of Genesis 1 and 2, and then also out of Ephesians 5. And then lastly, I want to look at where do we look for hope and for healing with regards to divorce and marriage. So with that, let's turn to our text for the day. This is in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? 
They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to give you a little context for this, um, going back now, in Mark 1 through 9, we see a lot of Jesus's preaching, teaching, and healing ministry mostly taking place up in the region of Galilee, so northern part of Israel. Mark 10, so, or excuse me, Mark 11, immediately following this chapter, is going to be the triumphal entry. So Jesus going into Jerusalem, and almost everything that happens afterwards takes place in and around Jerusalem. 10 is geographically kind of a transition chapter. So Jesus is traveling through the region that's sort of east of the Jordan and then down into Judea, so down into southern Israel, close to where Jerusalem was at. And we had seen in the last couple chapters that things are starting to escalate in terms of the tension between Jesus and some of the religious authorities. And what we're seeing here where they're coming to test him and to ask him questions is happening more and more frequently. So here the Pharisees come And they say, in order to test him, ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, they say it's a test. So this is not the Pharisees coming to Jesus with a genuine question. This is them trying to put him on the horns of some kind of very thorny issue. But they ask him this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And There's a lot behind this question, so I want to give you a little context. Because from what we can tell, in Jesus' day, the permissibility of divorce wasn't actually in question. So the religious teachers looked to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, as justification for the practice of divorce. And I actually want to read that for you real quick. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. This is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, if that passage seems a little convoluted, you would be right. So what's actually going on in that passage is it's talking about a circumstance where a woman was divorced by her husband at the time only the husband could initiate divorce. Then she goes and marries someone else. That man also divorces her. And it's saying that she cannot then go back and marry her original husband again. That's what it's regulating. Now, I don't know exactly what the circumstances was that that wall was addressing, but that sounds just really, really tragic and sad. But 
Nonetheless, this is the passage that religious leaders looked back towards as saying, see, Moses says that you can write a certificate of divorce. And that is exactly what happens here. When Jesus responds to them, so they ask him this question, and in good Jesus fashion, when someone asks him a question, he asks them a question back. And he asks them, so what does the law say? And they say that Moses permitted to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And what they're doing is they're pointing back here to Deuteronomy 24 and saying, see, Moses said we could write a certificate of divorce. Now, the real question that's behind the question here, in that Deuteronomy 24 passage, there is that line that says, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The question is, what does that indecency word mean? In other words, under what circumstances was a man allowed to divorce his wife? And there had been two schools of thought that had grown up around this, around two famous rabbis. The school of Shammai held to a stricter view that divorce was only permissible in the case of unchastity or infidelity, and the school of Hillel allowed for divorce for any reason, and I mean absolutely any reason. Anything that you found that you did not like about your wife, it could be her cooking, it could be anything about her, was justification for divorce. Now, I think it's interesting how much the debate they're having there sounds like debates that we have today, but that's maybe for another time. But it's likely this question that they're asking him is a test because they're asking Jesus to sort of take a side. What, is, what are the circumstances under which a person could be divorced? So how does Jesus respond? He says, Moses gave you this commandment because of your hardness of heart. Now I want to pause here a second because I think this is really important. One, Jesus is teaching something very interesting about the Old Testament law. He's saying that some of the Old Testament laws that we look back on are not actually representative of God's ideal. They are instead laws that God put in place in order to regulate and mitigate the hardness of heart that he knew his people were going to have. I find that very interesting. But then what is this hard-heartedness that Jesus is talking about here? So in Mark, we actually see hard-heartedness show up in two places. One place is in Mark 3, 5, where the Pharisees are objecting to Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. So Jesus has compassion on this man with a withered hand. He heals him, and the Pharisees give him a hard time about it, and, and Jesus is grieved and upset at their hardness of heart. The other place it shows up in Mark is in Mark 16, where he is rebuking the disciples for their unbelief. But this language also has Old Testament roots, and the Pharisees would have been very familiar with what Jesus is really accusing them of. Because if you go to the Old Testament, you see, one, Pharaoh is described as having his heart hardened, right? His persistent unwillingness to let God's people go. But even God's people are called hard-hearted. In Psalm 95, 8, it, it describes when Israel was in the desert and they were rebelling against God and consistently not trusting him, that that was them being hard-hearted. 
So this hard-heartedness that Jesus is talking about here is first and foremost directed towards God. It is a stubborn refusal to follow in his ways. It is a heart-level resistance to relationship with him. And as we see in the story of the man with the withered hand, I think it can also result in a real resistance to interact with others in a way that is compassionate and soft-hearted and Christ-like. Now, my guess is that for most of us in this room, we, can, we know what this is like. We know what this feels like. We probably can think back on some time in our walk with God when we were hard-hearted, where we were just not interested in what God had to say. We were not interested in particularly being close to God. There was just a resistance to him. And I'm guessing we also know what it's like to be hard-hearted towards another person. Maybe it's a family member or a friend that you've had where something happened in the relationship and there was just hmm, this resistance to relationship, this resistance to hearing them. And this can happen in a marriage. right? You take two people who are sinners and you put them together in a marriage and have them live together Right? There's, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for hurt. There's going to be opportunity for disappointment. Hey, this marriage thing isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. My spouse isn't quite who I thought they were going to be. I'm not quite who I thought I was going to be. Disappointment in yourself. I remember I experienced that. Like when I was, when I was dating and engaged to Ellen, I thought I was all that in a bag of chips. Like I thought I was quite the catch. But boy, on the other side of being married, like suddenly, whoa, there's a lot more self-centeredness and selfishness here than I realized. Suddenly, being married to Ellen was like this mirror in my life where I started to see things in myself that I didn't particularly care for. There was disappointment there in myself. There's just the stress and the tension that comes on marriages with kids and work and finances and just the day-to-day of life, there's loss that you walk through as a couple. And then, of course, there's just the sin, the sin of our own life and also the sin of your spouse, which when you're living with them, you sort of have a front-row seat to that. And all of these things can cause our hearts to shift, both away from God and away from our spouse, we can start to become hard-hearted and cause our hearts to start looking for the exits. Jesus here, though, is going to direct them away from hard-heartedness to something better. So when Jesus responds, he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. But therefore, God has joined together. Let man not separate. 
So Jesus tells the Pharisees, no, don't go back to Deuteronomy 24. You need to keep going. You need to go further back. You need to go to Genesis 1 and 2 and see what was God's intention for marriage. And one, it was that it would be between a man and a woman and that there would be a joining, a union that takes place such that they become one flesh. So God's intention for marriage was a union that lasts. And I find it striking here that Jesus attributes that joining not to a work of man, but to God, right? He says what God has joined. So I want you to think back to the last time you were at a wedding, okay? And, and all the stuff that's going on there, right? Like you've got the pastor doing something, right? He, he helps officiate the whole thing. And he, at the end, declares the couple to be this new family. Right? You've got the couple there and they're making vows to one another. And the, the state is involved, right? Afterwards, probably there was some sort of document signing that taking place. Like there's all of this stuff that's being joined, all of which is very important to making the covenant of marriage. But the most important thing that is happening as a wedding is not seen because there is a joining that God does in the midst of marriage here. And that's what Jesus points to here is that God is doing a joining. And he says, what God has joined, let man not separate. That separate there, that is a present active imperative. It's a command. He says, don't do it. Don't separate it. In fact, he may even go beyond that. After this, the disciples are with him, and they ask him again about this matter. And he says in verse 11, And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So what he's saying here is that if someone divorces and then they go and marry another, they are actually committing adultery against their original spouse. The sense that they're still, in God's eyes, married to that first person because they're committing adultery against them. If God has joined the joining, I think we have to ask a real question. Is that something that we have the authority to undo? Now, why does God care so much about this union? Why does he put so much weight on marriage? Well, for that, I want to look briefly at Ephesians 5. So in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, Paul gives his teaching on marriage. And close to the end of that, he gives us something that I think is a big clue about why God puts so much emphasis on marriage in the way he does. So this is starting, I'm going to read verses 31 through 33. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice there that Paul is quoting both Jesus and Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in Ephesians 5, Paul has built this living parable. He says that in a marriage, the husband is supposed to take on a role like Jesus and the wife is supposed to take on a role like the church. Such that he says that this is like a mystery. It's I'm speaking of Christ and the church. So our marriages are supposed to be this living parable. There's supposed to be a story of how Jesus relates to the church. 
This actually has Old Testament roots too. If you go back into the Old Testament, there are several places where God talks about his relationship with Israel like a marriage. And when they were you know, being idolatrous and seeking after other gods, he called it adultery. So this is kind of picking up on that and extending that to say, you know, our marriages have a purpose. They are a purpose of this living parable of Jesus and his church, such that when people look in at a Christian marriage, they should come to understand something about who Jesus is, who the church is, and how they relate to one another. That is a beautiful and high calling. It's also a very difficult one. But I think here this gives us a hint about why God puts significance on marriages because it has a role in our witness and our proclamation about him. Now, in other places, uh, we do see a couple places where there are exceptions, where it seems that there is a, a divorce is allowable. So, for instance, in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Jesus allows for the divorce in the case of sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says it's permissible in the case where someone is abandoned by their spouse because they have become a believer. So there do seem to be cases where God has said that divorce is allowable. But I would say that even in these cases, it is a may and not a must. And I think especially in those cases, if we were walking through that, we would need to check our hearts carefully that we were seeking the things of God and that we were being soft-hearted towards God and others. Now, if you're hearing this and have been through a divorce, I want to be clear that my intention is not that you would feel a sense of condemnation or shame from this message. My hope is, is that for all of us, this would be a turning of our hearts back to God's ideal for marriage and away from a culture that would teach us to abandon our vows whenever our feelings change. I hope you can see what a sharp contrast Jesus' teaching is here to what's kind of pervasive. But I also, just looking at everything that we have seen, and learned about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I believe there is great hope and healing for those who have been through a divorce. First, healing. Divorce is always, always painful. And for some, divorce was something that happened to you. You were wronged by a spouse. Or divorce happened in the context and pain of marital infidelity. There is a lot of hurt and brokenness that comes from that. So I wanted you to hear the same Jesus who taught this, which I believe to be true about divorce, also said, come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Behold, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So for those who have gone through the pain of this, who are looking to heal from this, look to Jesus for that. He has offered you to come to him and to find rest and healing for your soul. Now, for some, if you have been through divorce, there may be a real sense of feeling a need for forgiveness. If you have a sense of conviction after hearing what Jesus teaches about this, 
Either you recognize, hey, I got divorced when I shouldn't have, or recognizing that my heart was not right in the midst of that. My heart was hard-hearted towards God. Then I would say that this is a moment to walk in repentance. There is forgiveness for sin in Christ Jesus, and all of us are here because of the grace that we have received, and there is nothing from our past that is beyond God's capacity to forgive and heal, and divorce is absolutely included in that. And there's an opportunity to walk in newness of life, and what I think repentance looks like for this is recognizing that we've sinned, confessing to God, seeking forgiveness, and if possible, seek forgiveness from others and reconcile to the extent possible, recognizing that could look very different depending on the circumstances. But also know that if you've done that, then you walk in freedom and forgiveness because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? I also want to extend an invitation to all of the couples in our church. If you're struggling in your marriage, you're not alone in that. Believe me, every single marriage in this church has gone through hard times. Ellen and I have gone through hard times. I could tell you stories, but I won't because I didn't get permission. So most of them were my fault. (laughs) But I do want to, if you are struggling, I want to invite you to two things. First, I want you to examine your heart to see if you're becoming hard-hearted towards God or your spouse. Is that hard-heartedness setting in in your marriage? Because I think very often turning it around is going to involve a heart change. And if you recognize that's happening, pray to God to soften your heart towards him and towards your spouse. He can do it. So that's the first thing. The second is to don't walk through those struggles in marriage alone. So we as a church are committed to help couples who are struggling in their marriage, and asking for help in your marriage is not shameful. It's wise. None of our marriages, none of them are going to end up looking like Christ and the church without a whole lot of help from Christian community. So a couple specific resources for couples in our church. One is available now, two that are coming up. So right now, um, Clyde and Cindy are leading our marriage community group. So if you are looking for a place where you can be regularly meeting with other couples and studying marriage and learning about how to pursue God in the midst of marriage, that is a great community to be a part of. The community group board is right out the door on the left, so you can check that out, and I know they would love for you all to to join in that. Second, in the fall, we are planning to have an art of marriage class. So this is going to be, you know, it is going to be a class, but I know that uh, Clyde and Cindy are helping organize that, but there's going to be a lot of couples from the church who are teaching from their own experience and the materials, uh, the art of marriage materials. Uh, We are going to be trying to find a time that works for most couples that want to participate. So you will be hearing more about that uh, in the coming weeks and months as we are coordinating that. And then last, there is a ministry called A Weekend to Remember, which is a retreat for couples. And there's actually one going to be here in Houston at the beginning of June. 
And so we are going to be trying to put together a group for those who are able to, to go together to that. So those are three things. If your marriage is struggling, or even if it's not, and you are just wanting to work on your marriage and make it stronger, those are three things that you can look to of specific places where you can plug in. So lastly, um, after we go to the table and at the end of service, we are going to have a time of, of prayer. Some of the elders will be up here with their wives um, if you would like to have someone pray with you. And I wanted to, for a moment, just destigmatize a little bit what it means to come up for prayer because it seems like sometimes there's some hesitation to do that. One, coming up for prayer doesn't mean anything particular. Right? There can be lots of reasons people come up for prayer. Sometimes it's related to the sermon. Very often it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that was said this morning. So I did want to say that first. It doesn't mean anything particular for you to come up here. In particular, something I would like to tell you about this church community. Okay, So this church, when we see people coming up for prayer, what we think is, wow, that looks like a really good idea. Maybe I ought to do that too. And that's all we think. Amen? All right. <laughs> also, I wanted to say that if you come up and you don't feel comfortable praying up front, we do have places that you can go. We have offices where you can pray privately, so please feel free to ask for that. So anyway, I just wanted to encourage you, if you need prayer for any reason, don't hesitate to come up here. All right. Let's close in prayer, and then we will go to the table. Heavenly Father, Lord, we have here a, a challenging teaching from Jesus, but Lord, we know that your word leads to life and your ways lead to life. And Lord, I pray for, for all here, God, Lord, that we would check our hearts, that we would be soft-hearted towards you and your word, that we would be soft-hearted towards our spouses, for those who are married here. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the marriages of our church. Pray that more and more, day by day, they would grow to look more and more like Christ and the church. Lord, we love you and give you all the praise and the glory. In your name.